Hi, my name is Martha. The Old Testament reading is found in Exodus 14, 19-25. God's messenger, who had been in front of Israel's camp, moved and went behind them. The column of cloud moved from the front and took its place behind them. It stood between Egypt's camp and Israel's camp. The cloud remained there, and when darkness fell, it lit up the night. They didn't come near each other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord pushed the sea back by a strong east wind all night, turning the sea into dry land. The waters were split into two. The Israelites walked into the sea on dry ground. The waters formed a wall for them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians chased them and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and cavalry. As morning approached, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian camp from the column of lightning and cloud and threw the Egyptian camp into panic. The Lord jammed their chariot wheels so they wouldn't turn easily. The Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Wanda, and the New Testament reading is found in Acts 7, 35 through 39. This is the same Moses whom they rejected when they asked, Who appointed you as a leader and a deliverer? God did this with the help of the angel who appeared before him in the bush. This man led them out after, the, after he performed wonders and signs in Egypt and the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. This is the one who was in the assembly in the wilderness with our ancestors and with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. He is the one who received life-giving words to give to us. He's also the one whom our ancestors refused to obey. Instead, they pushed him aside and in their thoughts and desires returned to Egypt. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Naomi. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Mark 1, 9-14. About that time, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. While he was coming up out of the water, Jesus saw heaven splitting open, and the Spirit, like a dove, coming down on him. And there was a voice from heaven, You are my Son, whom I dearly love, in you, I find happiness. At once, the spirits forced Jesus out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. He was among the wild animals and angels took care of him. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, announcing God's good news. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Gracious Father, we're gathered here, gathered by you as your people, and our hearts are longing to hear your good news again. Would you continue to speak, but we know that you do, so would you actually really just help us to hear? Would you open our ears to hear, open our minds to understand, and would you 
open our hearts to be open to hear from you what it is that you have to say, to be open to the work of your spirit in our lives as you're doing the deep work of transformation in us. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you this morning. Especially good to see those of you who normally go to the 9 but decided to do the 11 because of daylight savings. And you're still a little bit sleepy. There's still some coffee in the lobby. So that's good news with great joy that I bring to you today. Uh, And for the rest of you who decided, you know what? With the time change and other things that are happening, decided to watch online. Hello to you as well. Hope to see you back uh, here on Sunday, uh, Sunday in Palmer soon. Not only is today uh, Daylight Saving Sunday, but it's also the second Sunday in Lent. Uh, if you're not familiar with that term Lent, Lent is a season in the church calendar that uh, the church, followers of Jesus, spend time sort of reflecting and repenting and fasting and praying, giving things up and giving things out as a way of journeying with Jesus to the cross and preparing our hearts to celebrate resurrection on Easter Sunday. This is also the first week in a brand new teaching series called Faith in the Wilderness that will actually take us all the way up to Easter and then we're going to pick it back up after Easter. And during this series, what we're doing is we're sort of dropping down the biblical narrative and the biblical story at really key moments in Israel's life between when they are rescued from Egypt and when they cross over into the promised land, when they spend this time walking in the wilderness. Israel spends really, especially in the first couple books of the Old Testament, several books there are about Israel sort of leaving Egypt behind, looking ahead to the promised land, but living in this middle space. Leaving something behind, looking ahead for what God has for them, but finding themselves wandering around in the middle. And if you spend much time reading the Bible, it doesn't take long to realize that, oh wait, that's my story too. The story of Israel is the story of us. It's our story. It's the story of Jesus rescuing us and us leaving behind by his power, by his spirit, by his work, leaving behind sin and death and the grave and all those things, but waiting for him to come again and set everything right and finding ourselves here in the middle. There's an Old Testament scholar named Brevard Childs who put it this way. He said, the church both individually and collectively, this is not just our individual stories, but even our whole story, the church lives in the memory of the redemption from the past bondage of Egypt. And she looks for the promised inheritance, but now she lives in the desert, somewhere between the Red Sea and the Jordan River. And that's often our experience of how we experience life and how we experience faith, that we live between the cross and new creation. We live between God's redemptive work in our lives, but we're still waiting for his final restoration. We live in the desert. And faith really is a walk in the wilderness for us. And throughout this series, what we're going to be emphasizing is this is not a walk that we take by ourselves. Oftentimes, the wilderness can feel very isolating, very lonely, 
can very much feel like we're just in here by ourselves. And yet one of the things that the writers of the scriptures call our attention to is that we don't take this walk alone, but we walk with one another. And more importantly, God walks with us. So we'll be dropping down in these moments and seeing how God is coming and meeting his people as they're walking in the wilderness. We're going to begin today with that entry into the wilderness, the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. So if you have Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 14, verse 10, or you can just follow along on the screens, whichever is best for you. So just give you a little bit of context of where we're at. Israel has, the people of God have ended up in Egypt, and in Egypt they were enslaved, and they spent 400 years there, and they cry out for deliverance. They cry out to be rescued. And at this moment, Yahweh hears their cry, and he calls Moses to go on his behalf to confront Pharaoh, to go to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to say, let my people go. And initially, Pharaoh refuses. And so there's this whole series of exchanges uh, that are followed by these plagues, these 10 sort of terrifying signs. And by the end of it, Pharaoh's like, okay, just go, get out of here. And Israel marches out of Egypt, and they're then camped in the desert on the west side of the Red Sea when Pharaoh changes his mind. He says, no, 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 wait a minute. This is actually a bad idea. Uh, go get them back. And so he sends his army, his chariots and horsemen and all those things just coming after Israel. And this is where we find ourselves in the story. And it says this in Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. So as Pharaoh drew closer. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked back and they saw the Egyptians marching toward them. All of the chariots, all of the horses, all of the infantry coming at them. And the Israelites were terrified. And they cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you took us away to die in the desert? This is a funny question, thinking the most famous graves in the world are in Egypt, right? Like, weren't there enough there for us? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt like this? Didn't we tell you the same thing in Egypt? Didn't we tell you that we really weren't cool with this plan? We didn't really want to go to the same people that were crying out for deliverance or not like, this was not our idea. We did not plan for this. We told you this was not a good idea. Didn't we tell you this? And they say to Moses, just leave us alone. Like, stop, leave us alone. Let us work, let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to work for the Egyptians, to be slaves, than to die in the desert. This is where Israel finds themselves, is that here they are in the desert. Imagine yourself there with them and all around is imposing wilderness. And in front of you is an impassable sea. It's like I-25 on the gap. Like it's just, there's no way through stuck and everything around you looks barren, right? And they're coming up behind you is instead of, you know, some out-of-control semi-trucks, there's coming behind you Pharaoh's army. Find yourself in this moment. They looked back and they saw Egypt. They saw Egypt and they were terrified. And that fear led them to despair. 
And then that despair led them to critique and to complain and to come against Moses. And it even led them all the way to the place to reconsider the whole thing. Yeah, you know, this whole idea about being free people, this whole idea about following God, this, this whole like plant, you know what? Actually, it's just a bad idea. Let's go back. Led them to the place where they're even saying, it would be better for us to go back there. See, the interesting thing about fear is fear is always looking for someplace to go. Yeah. It's always looking for somewhere to land. And if we let it, fear will take us with it. Yeah. Will take us to that place. If we'll follow, fear will lead. And it will lead us. And there's times that actually fear is a good thing. And the places that fear leads us are actually good. Thinking particularly about sort of healthy fears around heights, right? If you're on the top of a tall building, the Empire State Building, you name your building of choice, it is actually a good thing to have some fear because gravity is a great thing most of the time. There are times gravity is not so good and fear actually leads us to safety at that point, saying, I'm just going to stand back here just a little ways, kind of lean, maybe not lean that much, figure out what the comfortable place is. Even all of the conversations in the world right now around the coronavirus, there is healthy fear that says, you know what? It is a wise thing to wash your hands for 20 to 30 seconds with warm water and with soap. It has nothing to do about whether or not you have enough faith in God. It's just wise. Like, wash hands. If you've got a cold, stay home. Don't go to work when you're sick. These are things that would be true every moment of life. Right? We just heightened our sense of what is wisdom in the middle of this. Actually, the Proverbs even say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That there is a sense that fear can lead us to wisdom. But fear can also lead us down some dark paths, can lead us into some really dark places. Fear can lead us away from the way of God, from the will of God, from the wisdom of God. It can lead us in other places. And this is what's happening for Israel. As Israel's in this place, and this fear is coming up inside of them, and they decide it would be better for them to be slaves in Egypt than to die in the desert. They know what life in Egypt is like. Life in Egypt isn't good. Life in Egypt isn't easy. The Exodus makes this really clear. The book talking about they're making bricks all day, every day, working hard. Their value is completely caught up in their ability to produce things for the Pharaoh. It is a difficult life. It is a hard life. It is life in slavery, but it's known and it's predictable. We know what this is like. We know exactly what to expect here. Canaan, this other place, this promised land that God has talked about, this is promising. God describes it as a land flowing with milk and honey, which is how we describe every place that we want to live, right? It's like, oh, I'm just looking for a house. It speaks to me of something flowing with milk and with honey, right? But for them, this is an ideal way to talk about a land that's good for shepherds and farmers, it's good for the, the way of life that they feel called to live. That this is a good land that God has promised them. But Canaan's unknown. We know Egypt. Canaan's unknown. And not only is it unknown, there doesn't seem to be any way there. We know how to get back there. We're not sure how to get there. So maybe the predictable and the known is better 
than the promised unknown. They find themselves kind of in that place between the predictable and the promising. In the middle, there's the wild. There's the desert. They find themselves between the land of bondage and the land of bounty. In the middle, in this place, there's Bear Grylls. It'll catch up. There's wild, it's wilderness, it's desert. And in the desert, we don't know what life looks like. The wilderness is unpredictable. It's difficult. Sometimes it's described as a wasteland. It's a land where there's no city walls and there's no cultivated fields. Right? It's this land where we don't know where protection or provision are going to come from. Like this place, we know at least we have some level of protection, and we know at least going to be fed in some way. This place, there may be better protection, and there may be better provision, but right here, in this place, we don't see it at all, so maybe it would be better to go back. And what happens for us is we find ourselves in those places, the places in between, where we actually spend most of our life is that those wilderness places really reveal who and what we fear. Reveals that to us. See, Israel looked back, and when they looked back, they saw Egypt, and they were afraid. And they decided it was better to go back than to move ahead or even to stay. It was better to go back and to die as a slave than to die here in the desert. What do you see when you look around in your wilderness? And you find yourself in those middle places in life. When you look back, or you look around, or you look ahead, what do you see? For some of us, maybe we see an inescapable past, something that has been true of us, that we believe will always be true of us, a past that just seems to keep hunting us down, like Egypt's army just coming after us, and we feel helpless and afraid. For others, we had a hope, we had a dream, we had a plan, we had something that we thought was going to be true. We, had, we thought we were going to be here at this point in our life, and instead we look ahead and it now seems like just an impossible future. There's just no way to get there. Or maybe we just look around and it seems like there's nothing here. Just feel empty, feel lonely, feel afraid feel uncertain of even where we're at. What do we find ourselves afraid of? And where is that taking us? Where are we letting fear lead us? This is what Moses says to the people in that moment for them. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. So he says, stand your ground. Don't go back. Stand your ground and watch. The word there is see. See the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see them again. But instead, the Lord will fight for you. Just keep still. The word there is actually just be quiet. <laughs> it's like, just stop talking. Stand and watch to see what it is that God's going to do. See, what was happening for Israel at this point is they looked back and they could see Egypt's plan. They could see Egypt's plan to re-enslave them. That was clear. They could easily see that. What they couldn't see was God's plan to rescue them. They couldn't see it anymore. Fear actually kept them from seeing what God had already done 
It's like the memory of Passover, the memory of the plagues, the memory of the fact that they marched out of Egypt is already gone for them. They can't see it. In addition, they can't see what God promised to do. Both God's past faithfulness and his future promises has become dim and bleak and and unable to be seen. They couldn't see them. Fear kept them from seeing it. All they could see was the approaching army, not the coming God. And fear does that for us. Oftentimes, fear keeps us from seeing. Is there a sense that our present fear is in some way erasing our memory of God's past faithfulness? We just can't see it. Fear is keeping us from remembering how God has proven himself over and over and over and over again in our lives. Or maybe it's blinding us to the promises that he made. It's like, I just, I don't, I don't believe it anymore. I don't trust it anymore. I'm just not sure because it hasn't happened when I thought it was going to and where it was, thought it was going to and how I thought it was going to and in the timeline that I thought it was going to. So we just find ourselves stuck in this particular moment. And Moses comes into the people and to us and says, don't fear Egypt, don't go back, but instead see the salvation of God. See the salvation of God. And then we go on and read in chapter 14, we actually see what happens here. And the Lord said to Moses in verse 15, why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to get moving. So at one point he's telling them to stand still in the next, you know, Move, go on ahead. And it says, I'll ask for you, Moses, lift your shepherd's rod, stretch out your hand over the sea and split it in two so that the Israelites can go into the sea on dry grounds. And then down to verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord pushed back the sea by a strong east wind all night turning the sea into dry land. And the waters are split in two, and the Israelites walked into the sea on dry ground. And the waters formed a wall for them on their right hand and on their left. Verse 29, the Israelites, however, walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters formed a wall for them on their right hand and their left, And the Lord rescued Israel from the Egyptians that day. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore and they saw the amazing power of the Lord against the Egyptians. And the people were in awe. The original word there is they feared, began fearing the right thing. They feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Four times in this chapter, the word dry land appears. Another time in chapter 15. And four out of those five times, it's the exact same word in Hebrew. And that word actually appears for the very first time in the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 verse 9 says this, Then God said, Let the waters under the sky come together into one place so that dry land can appear. And that's what happened. God named the dry land earth and named the gathered waters sea and God saw how good it was. See, when God creates, he separates water 
and dry land appears so that life can take root. And when God saves, he separates the waters and dry land emerges so that people can be free. That God is the God who's continually bringing about dry land. The writer wants us to see that the God of creation is also the God of salvation. That he is the same God. And that salvation itself is a creative event. That when God saves, he causes something new to happen. He makes things new. That this is what he does. That God the creator is also God the deliverer. And when he delivers, new things begin to happen. And what's interesting in this story and in Genesis is that God causes dry land to appear in the wild. And the wildness of the oceans at creation, he causes dry land to appear. And in the wilderness for Israel, he causes dry land to appear. See, salvation actually happens in the wild. This is where God meets us. The wilderness is not simply a place where fear comes up for us. But the wilderness is the place where God sends his salvation. The wilderness is the place where God saves us. The wilderness is the moment where God comes and delivers. When we find ourselves at life's dead ends, where it seems like there's nowhere to go. Seems like we cannot move forward and everything behind us is catching up and to our left and to our right is nothing but desert. In these dead end moments in life, this is where God delivers his people. This is where God shows up and begins to bring us out of bondage into new life. What happens over the next couple chapters is that Israel walks through on dry ground and they get to the other side and they're looking back and seeing what it is that God has done and all of a sudden the people burst into song. The people who've been saved do what only saved people know how to do is sing. They started singing about the deliverance of God. This beautiful prose of God's deliverance is followed by this epic praise of God's people. Just saying, oh my goodness, the horse and the rider, he's thrown into the sea. Thank you, God. And here's what happens next, though. They sing this song. Moses sings this song. Miriam sings this song. There's dancing and there's tambourines. It's this huge party. And then we get to 15 verse 22 and it says this, then Moses had Israel leave the Reed Sea or the Red Sea and go into the sure desert. Wait, what? Leave the sea and go into the desert? And they traveled there for three days in the desert and they found no water. Verse 25 says, and there he tested them. Like, wait, 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 wait a minute. If we were writing this story, this is not how we would write it, right? Here's how this story should go. Egypt is coming. The sea's there. The wind blows. The people walk through the dry land. They look back and they see what happens, but they walk through the dry land into the promised land. That's how we want the story to go, Right? And it's immediately from the dry land into the promised land. Instead, they go from one dry land into another. They walk through the sea on dry land, and then they end up in a place where there is no water. 
See, in the scriptures, there are two kinds of dry land. There's the dry land that emerges that God uses to save us. The dry land that comes up out of the waters where God makes a way for us in the wilderness. He makes a way for us to escape the enemy. That he makes a way for us where it seems like there is no way. God makes a way, causes there to be dry land so that we can walk through it into his freedom. There's a dry land that emerges that God uses to save. 25 years ago today, March 8th, 1995, I came home from school. This is sophomore in high school. And my dad was home, which was really unusual uh, for him to be home that time of day. And my brother and I walk into the house and like having a family meeting, which we didn't do either. And my parents sat us down and said that they were separating, that my dad was moving out. And my dad and I weren't particularly close. We didn't have a great relationship, but this is all I knew. It was this. It was these people in this house in this time. And as a sophomore in high school, fear just began to take over in the middle of that. Like, what does this mean? What's going on? Why is this happening? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for my brother? What does this mean for my mom? How does this change finances? How does this change living arrangements? How does this change? Where's this going to end? What is going to happen? A couple of weeks later, sort of in the midst of just not having a clue, feeling like I'm at a dead end and there's no way forward. And then whatever is going to happen is surely going to be bad. Surely there's going to be destruction in the middle of this, and that's going to be the only story. And not knowing any way to move forward, having everything sort of now being dark and blinded by all that was going on, I walked up to Ken Quinnis's house. Ken was my uh, next-door neighbor and my manager at the grocery store and my ex-girlfriend's dad, which you've heard that story. <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> but I... <laughs> I walk up there and talk to Ken about what's going on, and Ken opens the Bible and begins to tell me about Jesus. And suddenly there was dry land that emerged, and there was a place that I could walk, and there was a person who was walking with me. And suddenly it didn't seem like there was no future, but instead the waters parted and there was a way to move forward. And somehow he met me in the middle of that moment. And the gospel came flooding. The person of Jesus came into that moment. And dry land appeared. Maybe for you this morning, you find yourself at one of those dead ends. Maybe it's the same kind of dead end that I was at and what you so desperately need is to see the, the dry land that the gospel brings about to become clear for you that Jesus has provided a way forward in the midst of all that's going on. Maybe you're in those places that you just really need a miracle. Something going on with a relationship, with a marriage, with a spouse, with kids, in a work relationship. Maybe it's finances, it's a job. Maybe it's an addiction or something from your past that just doesn't seem, you can't seem to get away from it. I've got good news for you that our God is a God who saves in the wild. 
that in the midst of all of these things, he can make a way through the impassable sort of seas that we find in front of us. He can rescue us from the things that seem to be croaching in on us. In those moments we feel like there's no hope and there's no way to go, Jesus comes into those moments for us and dry land emerges doesn't always come the way we think or the way that maybe we want or the way that we expect, but suddenly we find ourselves in those moments stopping, standing still, being quiet, stretching out our hands, and suddenly we can start to sense the Spirit of God blowing behind us, an east wind coming and parting the sea, and dry land appearing and helping us see that there is a way forward, not on our own, not in our own strength, not in our own power, but by the power of God that comes into those moments and makes a way. And what we're called to do is to stop and see the salvation of God coming to us. But there's a second kind of dry land in the scriptures. There's the dry land that emerges and saves, but there's also the dry land that purges the dry land that sanctifies us, the dry land that God uses to shape us and form us into his image and his likeness, where there's tests and there's trials, and in those moments our character gets revealed and God comes in and says, okay, let me show you something. Let me heal you of this. Let me teach you a new way. So the wilderness is not only the place of salvation, it's also the place of transformation. It's also the place where we find the Spirit of God working in us in ways that are easy to miss, that are easy to misunderstand, that are difficult and hard, but actually are life for our very souls. Two and a half years into Sarah's and my marriage, we didn't think we were going to make it. We were in seminary. I was a seminary student. I'd been a youth pastor and felt a call into ministry. And Sarah was working at the seminary. There was no water. It was a dry land. And we didn't think that we were going to make it. We thought that the marriage was going to die. Didn't seem like there was hope for us. And then in the midst of those moments, there were friends that came around us, people in our congregation, counselors, spiritual directors, the seminary community. And we found in the middle of this that the Lord began to reveal things in both of our hearts, things that he was wanting to work on, things that he was wanting to shape, things that he was wanting to form. And by his grace, we were able to keep walking (laughs) And both saying, yes, we want to keep walking. And both continuing to walk. And it was hard. And it was dry. And at times it seemed like, is this ever going to end? Are there ever, is, is, is there going to be life here anywhere? Is there going to be an oasis? And this last uh, December, we just celebrated 15 years. And God walking with us in the middle. See, there are times in life where we're looking for God to do the miraculous. We're looking for him to part seas, and that's what we think is the only way that he shows his presence to us. There's other moments in life that his presence comes in the slow and the steady ways, even in the place that feels dry. 
That even for Israel, it was in the wilderness that he continued to provide for them. It was in the wilderness that he guided them with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. That he never left them. That in those moments sometimes, though, when we're in that dry land that purges us, that dry land that reveals things that we would rather not have be revealed about us, that dry land that God uses to help expose things inside of our own hearts that he might bring his grace to bear on them and change us, it's in those moments where we're often like, God, where are you? But his presence is just as near in those moments as he is in the other but we prefer the miraculous over the mundane. We're like looking for God always in the Red Sea moments. And oftentimes he's walking with us in the day in and the day out. I've been following Jesus for 25 years now. And I can say there have been some incredible Red Sea miraculous sort of moments, but there have been way more mundane dry deserts to walk through. Most of the life of faith has been there of learning to walk, learning to live, learning to think in different ways, saying to the Spirit of God, okay, what are you doing now? What are you doing? How are you changing me? What are you revealing? It's often said in commentaries around this passage that Israel goes from this place and they walk in the desert for 40 years. 40 years before they get to the promised land. And the commentators will often say it was actually easier to get Israel out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of Israel. The, the, the purging of the way of life that they were used to, the way of thinking that they were used to, the theology that they inherited from all of those years, the identity that they've been given versus the identity that God was now giving them, that it took this time for God to slowly work with them in all of these things. One of our pastors at New Life who helps with Friday night in Manitou puts it this way. He says, we actually need the mindset of Egypt flushed out of our system. Both the pyramids pride and slavery's sadness. And wilderness does just that. We detox in the desert. See, if you feel that that's where you're at today, walking in those places, God is not no less with you now than he was with you in that moment of rescue. God is just as much with you in the desert in the wilderness, in the dry place, in the place of purging, when these things are being revealed, he's just as much there, just as much at work, just as much active, just as much concerned about this process of formation as he is about the rescue. Because for him, they're not different things, they're the same. It's his way of calling the people to himself, of rescuing us, not only from the place of Egypt, but even from the power of Egypt, the way in which Egypt kind of gets carried along with us, he wants to eradicate all of it and to bring us into true and full freedom. This is who our God is. He does the miraculous stuff, but it's even just as much miraculous what he does in the mundane and changing our hearts and lives to look more and more and more like Jesus. Jesus who actually goes before us into the wilderness. Jesus, who's already been where he's leading us and where he's taking us. Mark says it this way. He says, Jesus went down to the Jordan River to be baptized. 
And when he was coming out of the water, the waters separated and the heavens separated. Hear the echo of the Red Sea? He's coming out of the waters and the spirit descends and the father spoke. And at once, this, right after that, the, the father says, this is my beloved, whom I am well pleased. And then it says this, and at once the spirit forced Jesus into the where? Into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days. An echo of Israel being there for 40 years. And he was tempted by Satan and he was among the wild animals. He was in the wild. But there the angels took care of him. The Lord provided for him. And Luke says it this way. When he came back, Luke 4.14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. As the news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. See, Jesus has gone before us into the wilderness. And the Spirit goes with us in those places. And the Spirit of God meets us in these moments. As we walk faithfully in the wilderness, we continue to come week to week to a table where God provides daily bread for us, provides manna in the wilderness, provides his presence. A reminder that God is with us as we walk. And the table is the reminder that the God who is the, the deliverer, the one who causes dry land to emerge to save us, is also the God that walks with us in the wilderness, the one who's purging us of all of the things that are destructive to our soul, that we might live full and free lives. He's the God of both. And it's his table we come to this morning. Pastor Glenn. Amen. Thank God for that word. What a word. What a word. 